this morning. Isaiah chapter number 64 this morning, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read the entire chapter, just 12 short verses. The Word of God says, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. As when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things which we look not for, thou camest down. The mountains flowed down at thy presence. For since the beginning of the world men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness, those that remember thee in thy ways. Behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned. In those is continuance, and we shall be saved. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. There is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, thou art our Father. We are the clay, and thou art the potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. Be not wroth very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are all thy people. Thy holy cities are a wilderness, Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and our beautiful house, where our fathers praised thee, is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Wilt thou refrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? Let's read verse number 3 once more. The Bible says, When thou didst terrible things which we look not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at Thy presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this day that You've given us. Thank You for Your holy Word, Lord. I'm thankful this morning that we can be confident that we have Your mind from Your Word this morning. Lord, there's no guesswork. We have it here before us, and we thank You and bless Your name and praise Your presence for it. Lord, I pray that You would accomplish in the hearts of each and every individual that's here this morning... Lord, that You would accomplish in their hearts and their lives something that would bring great and mighty glory to Your name and to Your Son. Father, help us all to be stirred up within ourselves to take hold of You this morning, to see You do something mighty in our midst. If there's any amongst us that are lost and undone, Lord, show them their need, that they might come to Calvary, that they might be born again. Lord, help us and teach us to love You more. Father, we thank You for all these things. We do ask them in the precious and magnificent name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Here in the passage before us, we've read a prophecy concerning the nation of Israel and concerning the circumstances that would follow uh, just in about a century in their experience when they'd be taken captive and carried away to Babylon. Uh, Here is the prayer and the plea for God to revisit His people. And I was struck as I read this passage by the phrase that's used in verse number 1 where the Bible says that thou wouldest come down. 
You see, at the end of the day, we talk a lot about revival. But really, what is revival for the church life? Does revival mean that we're all going to all of a sudden get better cars and better houses, that we're all going to wear a smile on our face at all times? No. Uh, typically, I see that revival brings tears of a holy sort. Does revival mean that we're never going to have any health problems or we're always going to be in tip-top shape? You know, God's going to just skin those pounds off of us and our, our knees and our backs are going to work again. No, I don't find that. I find that many times with those tears comes a torment, but of a holy sort. You see, if we were to sum up revival, there's lots of different definitions. I've heard it said before that revival is, is falling in love with Jesus all over again. I've heard that revival is when God's people get rid of the hogs, like in Mark chapter number 5, and so on and so forth. But really, I believe if we were to find a, a summarizing statement to define revival in church life, it would be the statement that we've read before us this morning that thou, speaking of the Lord, wouldest come down. You see, what we're seeking when we're seeking revival is a greater knowledge of the presence and power of God in our experience. We're seeking a closeness to the Lord that is only found within His presence. Now, let me say to you tonight or this morning, whatever time it is, amen, I'm in preaching mode, i got no idea. But let me say to you this morning that there is a sense in which we are always in the presence of God. But there is another sense in which we enter into the presence of God. And then there's a third sense in which the presence of God visits us. You see, we have an omnipresent God who made this promise to you and I that He would never leave us nor forsake us. But I would remind you this morning that there's plenty of folks that the Lord's never left, that He's never forsaken, because any that are His, He'll never leave, He'll never forsake, that know nothing of what victory is in the Christian life. And could I say to you that it's a blessed truth when we abide under the shadow of the Almighty, when we enter as Elijah did. You remember what Elijah said, don't you? He walked into Ahab's palace. Here he is standing in front of this king with a rebellious heart, with a wicked heart that doesn't know God, that had every reason to take Elijah's head off. And uh, Elijah looked at him, and this is what he said. Now, if it had been most of us, we would have said, Oh, gracious King Ahab, let me just take a moment of your time. But that's not what Elijah said. He said this, As the Lord God... God liveth before whom I stand. You see, Elijah had a consciousness of the presence of God. Elijah understood that he was standing in God's presence. But can I say there's many of us that enter into the prayer closet and we go into the presence of God, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we experience revival. You see, any time we go into the prayer closet, we're entering the presence of God. The Bible says that we have boldness and access to the blood of Jesus Christ that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. And I'm thankful that we can do that. But can I say that this morning, we're not talking about us coming up to Him. We're talking about Him coming down to us. We're not talking about merely the presence in the prayer closet. We're not talking merely about the perpetual presence that God has with His people. But we're talking about something unique and special this morning. And that's when God, as the psalmist says, visits this vine. When God shows up and does things that can't be explained, they just have to be experienced and observed. I would say to you that revival is still a possibility today. I fear sometimes, and let me say this, I believe in Bible prophecy. If you don't believe in Bible prophecy, you're going to have to cut a third of your Bible away. I believe in Bible prophecy. 
And I'm keenly aware, as Brother Larry mentioned this morning, about the turmoil that's in this world. I'm keenly aware that, that there's radical... Uh, well, any Muslim that's a good Muslim is a radical Muslim, because that's their religion. The religion is one of violence, conversion by force, murder, hatred. That, that's what their, their book, the Koran, teaches. If you don't believe me, I can show you a copy of it. I own a copy of it. And I can show you where it says that they're to kill all the infidels. You say, who's the infidels? That's you and me. That's who that is. That's anybody that's not a Muslim. And uh, I'm aware of the turmoil. I'm aware that they say there's terrorists in Mexico. Truthfully, all that means is they finally told us about the terrorists in Mexico. We got them here. Amen. We got there's something like 600,000 student visas that have been issued to students that never showed up. That ought, that ought to that ought to trouble us as American citizens. But I'm aware of the turmoil and trouble today. Can I say I'm also aware that in the in the scheme of Bible prophecy and the structure of God's prophetic plan that America is nowhere mentioned. I'm aware of that. I'm aware that Russia is mentioned. I'm aware that Egypt is mentioned. I'm aware that China is mentioned. But I'm aware that America is not mentioned anywhere. But can I say that sometimes there is a danger that we get so focused on the prophetic that we miss the passionate and the practical. I'm not saying we dismiss prophetic preaching. I believe it has its place, and I believe it's a prominent place. But could I say that just because Jesus is coming back, that don't mean we can't have revival. What does the Bible say? Exhorting one another, provoking one another unto good works, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You see, the fact that Jesus is coming back, that ought not cause us to dismiss the prospect of revival. That ought to cause us to embrace the prospect of revival. I believe the only answer to a lot of our problems is revival. And when I read this passage, I'm aware that this is a different dispensation. I'm aware that this is God's elect and holy people, Israel. I'm aware that this deals with them as a remnant. I'm keenly aware of all those things. But I'm also reminded of what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10:11, when speaking about the nation of Israel and their history. It says, now all these things happened unto them for in samples. And they are written... For our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. You see, I'm aware that what we're speaking about this morning is the nation of Israel. But I'm keenly aware of this too, that God has it in that book for a reason. And that just as God dealt with His people Israel, that there's a lot of ways in which God deals with us very similar. I'm not saying the church is Israel, nor am I saying that Israel is the church, but I am aware of this, that God is God, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that there's some truths concerning God reviving and working in the lives of His people that were true then that are still true now. And when I read these 12 verses, I see a picture of the revival that we need. I see a pathway to the revival that we need. I see the prospect of the revival that you and I need. There's never been a day when the church needed revival more than it does today. We've got so much evangelism, and I'm not against evangelism. But nowadays we have a revival, and it's really evangelistic. Or we have an evangelistic meeting, and we call it revival. And there seems to be no distinction betwixt the two. And I believe the church is suffering for it today. I'm for evangelism. We ought to be evangelistic. But there is a place that revival occupies in church life that is very prominent and valuable and important. 
the importance of you and I as God's people willing to step into God's examination room and lay on God's examination table and allow the Holy Ghost to take the Word of God and walk through our life and be honest enough to acknowledge when God has pointed something out, to acknowledge our great need. I want to show you a few things from this passage this morning. And I, I, I'm going to be honest. Now, this is going to scare you when I say this, but i got more notes than i got sermon. Amen? So, actually, it's, it's not that i got more notes than i got sermon. It's that i got more notes and more sermon than i got time. So I'm going to try to hurry. I want you to notice with me, in verses 1 and 2, we find the plea for revival. Now, this is the natural language that's used here. It says, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. As when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. When you read that, that don't sound like the average response to a revival meeting, does it? But I think therein lies the very problem. I'm aware this is poetic language that's being used. But I think also that the substance of truth that is found here reveals to us what revival really is. I want you to notice first off that there is a revealing that will take place. Look again what he says, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down. We cannot do through the energy of the flesh what can only be accomplished through the presence of God. I fear that sometimes we've got this thing so figured out and so mechanized. And I don't mean mechanized in the way that the Bible mechanizes it. There's no question. There's things that hinder revival. There's things that bring revival. And that's true of your personal life as well as this church's corporate life. There are things that bring revival and that hinder revival. But I fear sometimes that we think if we uh, mail out a bunch of flyers, if we schedule the preachers, if we schedule the singers, and if we all get together, then we've done all that it takes to have revival. And that's not so. What revival really is, is a revealing of God to His people. We've grown lazy and dim-eyed. We've grown to have an abstract view of Christianity that is divorced from the revelation that comes only in the presence of God. And we have come to a place where we are using vain and vague platitudes to describe God because we know so little of Him. You ask the average Christian what they think about God, they'll say something like, well, I think He's great. Oh, friend, he is great, but he's not great the way you mean it. They'll say, oh, I think he's awesome. If there's ever a misused word, <laughs> it's the word awesome. Oh, yes, he's awesome, but not awesome in the way that you've described. You see, what revival really brings is a revelation of God to us. Revival is not us learning more about ourselves. That's not the only thing it is. It's us learning more of him. I believe there's a revealing that will take place. But notice, secondly, I believe there's a refining that must take place. Look at verse number 2. As when the melting fire burn, the fire causeth the waters to boil. Now, this is very interesting language that's used. It can be taken either as two aspects of one thought or two separate thoughts. But either way, it presents the same truth to us. And that's the idea of the melting fire. The melting fire that would be used in purifying and refining gold is to bring it to such a temperature that that which is trivial and polluted and corrupted must necessarily burn away. Let me tell you something. A lot of the reason that we got so much junk in our lives is because of how far we are from the Lord. We'd find out. And listen, I'm not being judgmental this morning. We all have things that are superfluous and that are silly that need to be gotten rid of. And I find that when God comes through like a burning fire in the lives of His people, all of these quote-unquote priorities fall to the back seat. Oh, we have obligations. Of course we have obligations. We have things we must meet. 
God doesn't expect everyone to quit their jobs, go out and pass out tracts. Listen, if God's put you in that place, God bless you. It's the greatest blessing you'll ever have. But what I'm talking about this morning is not saying that we must dismiss ourselves from the obligations and duties of life, but that they must take their proper place behind Jesus Christ, behind His church, behind His Word, behind the prayer closet. You see, revival has a refining thing. It gets us in the mindset and perspective of eternity. Oh, Jonathan Edwards who saw more revival than most of us could ever imagine, used to preach, and he'd use this famous saying. He'd say, Oh, God, stamp eternity upon my eyeballs. A lot of us this morning, we need that stamped right here. We need eternity in our mindset and in our view and in our concept at all times because what we've done is we've become, uh, we've become addicted to the temporal. We don't know how to function outside of that framework. I see refining must take place. But then notice another result. Look at verse number 2. What does the last phrase say? To make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. There's a reverencing that will take place when there's revival. We all gripe about what disrespect there is for the people of God and the man of God and the things of God and the Word of God today. I know you do. I do too. We all get so fed up. We say, oh, look look, look how people are. Used to, nobody would break into church. I say, oh, used to, you know, used to, nobody uh, use all these corrupt Bible versions. Oh, used to, nobody do this, nobody do that. I'm aware of that. But let me tell you something. It doesn't lay at the world's feet. It lays at our feet. Because we lived in dead Christianity for too long. As a nation, as a country, we lived in dead Christianity for too long. We let the modernists come in. We let the formality come in. And we started letting our programs run our churches instead of our sovereign, holy God. When that happened, we forfeited something we've never gained back. Something will have to take place. You know, it's always harder to regain that which has been lost. You remember when Moses went up onto the mountain the first time and got the tablets, God had them waiting for him. But after he threw them down and destroyed them, God said, all right, now you hew them and you carry them up the mountain. It's always harder to get back things that we've lost. I think real revival will cause there to be a reverence in a community for the things of God. Now, we don't like to talk about this kind of revival because it's intimidating to us. But let me tell you something. We got, we, we, we've got to the place where we've tried to legislate wickedness away. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about you and me. I'm talking about the moral majority. I'm talking about the political right. We are trying to legislate away things that can only be destroyed through the influence of the Spirit of God in people's lives. You'll never make everything wicked illegal. And even when, listen, even when we finally do, uh, do you know there's going to come a time when Jesus Christ will sit upon the throne of David? When He does, the Bible says He'll rule with an iron rod. But even in that time, rebellion will swell in the hearts of some that live in that day during the millennial kingdom. You say, oh, I don't know about that. Oh, where do you think they were gathered from when they were gathered from the four corners of the earth to Gog and Magog to battle against uh, the Lord and His army and to consume the holy city in Revelation chapter number 20? Where did they come from? That rebellion had been swelling in their hearts. You say, where are you getting that, preacher? I'm saying we can't legislate it away. We try to legislate the booze away, they'll moonshine. We try to legislate the abortions away, they'll go to back out. We try to legislate prostitution away. They'll open up secret houses and brothels. I'm saying, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do what we can, but I'm saying we can't expect that to do the job. There's only one thing that can influence and affect a society so that they would reverence the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, and that's when God gets a hold of a community. There was a time you'd go through the community, uh, through the uh, country of Wales, and you'd go through and there'd be old shut-down bars everywhere. 
because of what had taken place in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I mean, listen, God can do something. God can do something that your politician can't. God can do something that your uh, city councilman can't, that your senator or your congressman can't. The best thing you might be able to do is try to suppress it. But thank the Lord that He can save them and redeem them and change them for His glory and on. Revival will bring a reverencing. We see the plea for revival. Notice, secondly, in this passage, we see the precedent of revival. Has God ever done this before? Look what it says. Verse number 3. When, when, when thou didst... Now, that's past tense, isn't it? I'm no English major. I I have trouble. People ask me sometimes how I feel about the Hebrew and the Greek. I say, I struggle with the English. Amen. That's past tense, though. It says, when thou didst terrible things. Notice this first phrase, which we look not for. I'd say that there is a historical precedent that there has been times that God has provoked revival in a group of people. There were times when folks weren't looking for it, and they got it anyway. You can go through... There was times when folks was not looking for it, but they got it anyway. When God swept through like a hurricane. But can I tell you something? That's just the sheer grace of God. We're not to expect that to happen all the time. Oh, there were times... You can go through history, and you can find that there were times when God came through, and nobody was looking for it, and nobody was expecting it. But He came through like a mighty rushing wind and did something that no one was looking for. God has provoked revival before. But notice the second thing. Look at the phrase that He uses here. We find it's eerily similar. (laughs) He says, Thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at Thy presence. I'd say there's been times God has provoked revival, but there's certainly been times God has performed revival in the lives of His people. I mean, there's been times that that folks weren't looking for it, but there's been times when they've sought after it that God had it waiting for them. It uses this language, it's come down and the mountains flowed down at Thy presence. I could go back through history. We'd go to the 1700s and the Great Awakening. A time when, listen, most of us, now I'm being honest. I'm, I'm lumping myself in with this too. Most of us wouldn't have sat through a church service at that time. I mean, we, now we live in a day where if somebody don't do a backflip, we think a church is dead. <laughs> at that time, I mean, you know, the preacher got up, he'd mount the pulpit, he'd open his manuscript, and he'd read. And yet it's said when Jonathan Edwards read the uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which a lot of you probably read in school, I know I did, it's said that he had to quiet the crowd down. They were weeping and crying and repenting so loudly that he could not finish his sermon. Times when God has swept through, as I've already mentioned, as He did in Wales, and He shut down brothels, and He shut down uh, the, the booze houses, and He changed an entire community. I'm saying God's done this before. He's done it. There's a precedent for revival. But then notice this next verse. Look at verse 4. We have this verse, in a sense, quoted for us in the New Testament. But I want to focus on one word in particular. Verse 4, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee. What he hath, what God hath, prepared for him, the person seeking revival, that waiteth for him, that waiteth for God. I'd say that God has provoked revival, God has performed revival, but I'd say God has prepared revival for you and I. We'd be amazed what God would love to do in our presence if we'd let Him. You say, oh, you mean let Him like, you know, just do what we feel like? No, that's not what I mean. I mean, if we get our sin out of the way, if we get our apathy out of the way, if we get serious about the things of God, we'd be amazed what God could do. In fact, it's so mighty and so marvelous and so wonderful The Bible says it's not entered into the ear or the mind or the eyes. 
We can't even fathom what God is capable of. I'm not talking about in a spiritual realm. It is spiritual, but I'm talking about in our church. We can't even fathom what God could do if we give Him 100%. If we'd sell out to Him, we can't even fathom it. I mean, if we'd get serious about it, if we'd spend some real time on our knees praying, if we'd spend some real time getting devoted completely given over to Him. We couldn't even imagine what God is capable of doing. Here, Nick, put this one on for me. I ain't even going to fool with that anymore. We'd be amazed what God is capable of doing. It would blow our minds, the things that God could do in our midst, if we would only be willing to give everything to Him. We see in this passage the precedent of revival. But I want you to notice some prerequisites. Look at verse number 5 with me. What does the Bible say? Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness. Now, what are we talking about? We're talking about the presence of God visiting us. And what does it say? Who's the kind of folks that God meets? Those that rejoice and worketh righteousness. I think if there's ever going to be revival, we're going to have to have a sanctifying in our midst. Now, what I mean by that this morning is I mean that you and I are going to have to get some things out of our life. Let me put this as plainly as I know how. If we're not willing to, we shouldn't expect God to do anything in our midst. If as you sit there this morning, if your mindset is, I just came because this is what I do. It's another Sunday morning. This is where I go, so I might as well go. Then don't expect God to do anything. It's funny, there's folks say sometimes, well, you know, it's just another church service. Well, what do you mean another church? Well, you know, the sermon was man, you know, the choir, and you know, the specials, man, you know, it was all right. Let me tell you something. What goes on in this building has a lot more to do with what goes on out there than what goes on up here. I mean, if we're really willing to get sin out of our lives, we'd be amazed what God would do. That means allowing God to take inventory. See, we want to take inventory. We want to say, okay, Lord, this is what I'll give up. That's what I'll give up. But if we'd allow God to give inventory, like what David did when he said, search me, try me, see if there be any wicked or unclean way within me. If we'd really be willing to say, Lord, you can have everything of my life. Whatever you convict me of, I'll today get it out of my life. That's where revival begins. Those that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness. Notice secondly, look what it says. Verse number 6. It says, but we all are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You know this verse very familiar. Uh, you, you've quoted it. You've, you've read it a hundred times. You've heard people say it from the pulpit untold thousands of times. That all of our righteousnesses as filthy rags. And yet what I find interesting is in this passage, we're not talking about unsaved folks. We're talking about God's people. Now, wait a minute. For you and I, our righteousness is the righteousness of Christ, is it not? And yet it says all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Reckon wonder what that means. I believe we have a truth concerning it in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says that I might be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of God by faith. I would say there's going to have to be a sanctifying, but I'd say there's going to have to be a surrendering. Vance Havner used to say that you can use a lot of energy trying to push what can only be pulled. There's a lot of stuff we're trying to work up. That it's not a matter of working up. It's a matter of giving over to the Lord and allowing Him to do it in our lives. 
You see, the reason, and I think the key is found here in verse number 6. Look at the next phrase. It says, and we all do fade as a leaf. Now, if you've ever tried to live in the energy of your flesh, you know what he's saying there. When you try to do it your own way, through your own strength, when you try to be righteous through your own energy, rather than following the Holy Spirit of God, you just follow that standard, whatever it is. You live the life, you play the game, you put on the mask. The Lord says, it's just as filthy rags. That which is used up and corrupt and polluted, and that which is only fit to be cast away and to be used no longer. Listen, we're going to have to get to the place where we really depend on the Holy Ghost if we're going to see God do something. Not just occasionally, but perpetually. Constantly. I'm not talking about living a life of perfection, mind you. I'm talking about living a life of surrender. I'm not talking about trying to do it your way, for it's your way that's gotten you in that mess. I'm talking about trying to do it the Lord's way. Look at what it says in verse 6. This is interesting. It's verse number 5. It says, Those that remember thee in thy ways. Now, I'm going to read this without the next phrase because I want you to gather that this is a parenthetical phrase. The next phrase that says, Behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned, that's a parenthetical statement. In other words, it's as if you could put a bracket on either side of that. And so if we were to read it without it, what does it say? It says, Those that remember thee in thy ways, in those is continuance, and we shall be saved. What the writer is saying is that you will respond and meet with those that know how you operate and that are, uh, that are familiar with your ways. And we know that we've sinned and we know that we've messed up and we know, God, that you're angry. But the fact that you're merciful and plentiful in mercy and willing to forgive, we know that in those ways there is continuance and we shall be saved. Listen, if we call on Him, He'd answer. If we'd repent, He'd forgive. We don't talk about repentance much today because it's not real popular. But it's still a biblical principle and doctrine. God's folks need to learn how to get on repenting ground with the Lord and willing to say, Lord, I've done it my way and my way's a mess. But God, I'll do it your way if you'll forgive me. We see there must be a surrendering. But I want you to notice next, and I don't even know how far we'll get, but notice what it says in verse 7. It says, And there is none that calleth upon thy name. Notice this next phrase, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. I would say that there must be a sanctifying and a surrendering, but I would say that there must be a stirring if we were to ever see revival. What does it mean when it says stirring? Do you remember what was said uh, to young Timothy in the New Testament where Paul said that he was to stir up? that gift of faith that was within him. It's interesting that it doesn't say there's none that God stirs up. It says there's none that stirreth up himself. Could I say that there is a place where we must become an enemy of complacency if we are to see God work. There must become a realm we enter into and a mindset that we adopt where we see complacency as just as destructive as iniquity. A place where we recognize that the mediocre will not satisfy. All of the great men of God in the Bible, what was it about them? What was it about them? 
Was it that they were so talented? I don't think so. Mostly shepherds, farmers, fishermen. Was it that they were so righteous? Read the pages of God's Word and ask yourself if they are blameless and without spot. What was the reason that God used men like David and men like Moses and men like Elijah? Why was it that God used men like Isaiah and Jeremiah? It's because they were willing for God to stir them up. And they were willing to stir themselves up. There's lots of stuff, and, and, and I'm not being critical this morning. I promise you I'm really not. I understand it's easy to get tore up sometimes about the state of this world. Isn't it? It's easy to get upset about the condition of things. And I'm aware of how deplorable that this world is. But let me tell you something. There's lots of stuff that we're getting upset about that there's a lot bigger things we could be upset about. We get upset every time they raise the taxes. And I understand that. Nobody wants to pay extra taxes. We ought to be more upset over the lack of prayer in our country. I, I, I'm aware we get upset when we find out that there's terrorists down in, in, in Juarez or, or uh, wherever it is. I'm aware and I, I understand that. I'm not, I'm not dismissing that, nor am I being critical of that alarming you. But I'm merely saying it ought to upset us more, the condition of the church today. We ought to be willing to stir ourselves up about some things. Notice that this stirring up and the prayer life go hand in hand. Look at it again. There is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. I believe this is not only an external stirring or an externally focused stirring, but an internally focused stirring. Stirreth up himself to what? To take hold of thee. Let me ask you something this morning. And I know we don't like to hear things like this. But I wouldn't love you if I wasn't willing to ask you things like this. If revival depended upon you, would revival ever come? Some of you would say, well, what about you? Yes, I need to ask myself that question. If the entire church was like you, what kind of a church would it be? If everything was dependent upon your prayer life, if you were the only one praying, would the job still get done? If the way that you're living was the ultimate example of this church or of Jesus Christ, what would people's impression be of Him? You say, what are you doing, preacher? I'm trying to get us to stir ourselves up this morning. I'm trying to get us to look beyond that which is comfortable to that which is effectual. I'm trying to get us to look beyond that which pleases us to that which possesses us for His glory and for His honor. I'm trying to get us to understand it's going to take more. You say, more than what? More than we're given. You say, oh, preacher, no, I don't mean money. What does the church at Macedonia, what was said about them? They gave first to themselves. I'm saying it's going to take more prayer. It's going to take more devotion. It's going to take more surrender. You say, how do you know that? Because revival's not here. I mean, we've got to get serious about this thing if it's going to happen. Oh, we can have a meeting. I can schedule a meeting. I can schedule a preacher. I could call. I could pick up my phone right now. I could schedule half a dozen of them. Some of them some pitiful preachers. I could have them here tonight. <laughs> oh, I could organize a meeting. But when will revival come? We've had meetings. Have we ever had revival? I'm going to tell you as a pastor, I don't believe we ever have. We've had good meetings, praise the Lord. We've seen God move, praise the Lord. I'm not dismissing that. 
But let's call it what it is. It's just a meeting. It's just preaching. It's just services. There's a place for those meetings. There's a place for those services. But are we willing to seek more? Are we willing to go further? How bad do we want it? Do we want it bad enough to stir ourselves up? Does it drive us? Does it put a passion within us? Do we long for the presence of God in a greater way? We see there must be a stirring up. We see also the premise of revival. Why should God give us revival? Look at verse number 8. The Bible says, But now, O Lord, Thou art our Father. I believe that God has a desire to give us revival because He's our parent and He seeks our good. You know, as a parent, you want what's best for your child. You don't always want them to have what they want because they don't want what's best all the time. But you always want what's best for them. And in the same way, God as our Father has a desire that we might live in His glory and in His grace and that we might see victory. I believe we can expect revival because of God's desire for us. But I want you to notice the second thing. Look what it says. It says, We are the clay, now our potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. I would say because he's our parent and he seeks our good, but I would say because he's our potter and he seeks our growth. God has a desire to see us grow and become more mature Christians. That only happens within the presence of God. What does the Bible say? Be like a tree planted by rivers of water. That river of water is speaking of the influence of the Holy Spirit. The living waters. Any time in the Word of God that water is seen as something that's uh, to be drank, it usually represents the Holy Spirit of God. It's only through walking in the Spirit of God that we can be as a tree planted by rivers of water. That we can give forth our fruit in its season that we could stand and not fade away, that we could be prosperous, and God has a desire for us to grow and to see Him do great things in our life. Notice the third thing. I believe that God wants revival for us because we're His people, and He seeks our glory. Not that we might receive glory, but the glory that we might give Him. Isn't that what it says? Look at verse number 9. Be not wroth, very sorrow, Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech Thee. We are all thy people. You know what I believe this is evoking? I believe this evokes what Moses used to say in the Old Testament. You remember how it was all through the book of uh, Exodus and and Numbers and, and Deuteronomy. The nation of Israel would be rebellious. God would say, Moses, move aside. I'm going to smite every one of them. Moses would say, Lord, you can't do that because they're your people. And if you smite them, these nations are going to say, you don't have the power to bring them out and to bring them in. Lord, you can't smite them. You're the one that brought them out of Egypt. They're your people. And how they live is a direct reflection of your might and power in the eyes and minds of these pagan nations. I believe that God wants us to see and seek revival because that it's a testimony to His glory and to His name. Part of the reason that the church is a laughing stock today is because we've departed from His presence. He's not seen. Do you believe we're laid to sin today? Do you believe that? Do you believe that's where we're at? I believe that's where we're at. We find at the beginning of Revelation that Christ is seen walking through the midst of the seven candlesticks. And He's there, perceptible to the church. But we find when we get to the Laodicean church in chapter number 3, that He's no longer in the midst. He's on the outside. 
and he's seen knocking, calling for someone to come let him in. Could that be Walridge Baptist Church? I'm just asking. Don't get angry with me. Could that be us? Rich and increased with goods, having need of nothing, and yet poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked. Oh, we like to look to the modernist church across town. We like to look to the big liberal outfit that has the rock concerts, and we like to say, oh, look at them. Look how far they are. But I've got the sneaking suspicion that it may be Jesus sent knocking at their door. Not because He's on the inside, but I do kind of believe He's knocking at our door. You don't knock except you don't feel welcome. Isn't that true? My parents always say to me when I go to their house, if I knock on the door, they'll say, why do you knock? It's your house. Come on in. We knock when we don't feel welcome. We knock when we're seeking permission. I wonder how many of us, God's knocking on the door of our heart and our life. and He's saying, would you let me back in? Would you let me back in? You know why we kicked him out, don't you? Because when he's somewhere, he's on the throne. Isn't that true? Wherever he's at, he's on the throne. He's not on the cross like the Catholics say. He's already been to the cross. And he's defeated death and he's risen from the dead. Now his place is the throne. We've kicked him out because we don't want him on the throne. Oh, we're, we're satisfied to be old-fashioned. We're happy to have the right Bible and praise the Lord for it. But who's on the throne? Who's on the throne in our church life? Who's on the throne in our personal lives? You see, the reality of this is he ought to be the one getting the glory. And he has a desire to revive us that he might get glory out of our lives. I want you to notice this, and I'm just going to mention it and close. Look at verse number 10. It says, Thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. I want us to notice the pressing need for revival. I would say that first off, the state of the White House tells me that we need revival. Isn't that what he's saying? He's speaking of the nation of Israel. He says holy cities. So he's not just speaking of Jerusalem. And he denotes Jerusalem here in a moment. He says, Thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. What's he saying? He's saying the condition of our country tells me that we need revival. Let me tell you, this thing's not going to be fixed from the White House. It's not going to be fixed from the White House. In fact, you'll find an interesting progression that takes place because I see that we need revival because of the state of our White House. But notice the next verse. It says, Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praise thee is burned up with fire. I'd say the state of the church house tells me that we need revival. We live in a day, and and let me say, I'm thankful for the prayer life of Wall Ridge Baptist Church. I'm thankful that this is the kind of place where we have all-night prayer meetings. But could I say to you that we could be doing more? We don't have to watch families disintegrate before our very eyes. We don't have to watch young people depart into a harsh and hellacious world, divorced from the faith of their parents. We don't have to watch that. We can have victory. We can see God move and work. And the very fact that we haven't tells me that we need revival. We need it. Not just we want it. 
We need it. In fact, my great fear is that we need it, but don't want it. I'd say the state of the church house. And it's interesting because the church house is what will fix the White House. But notice this third statement. It says, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. What's Isaiah saying? He's saying, look at our country and the condition it's in. And he says, look at the church house and the condition it's in. Then Isaiah says, look at my house and the condition that it's in. I'd say the state of our house tells us that we need revival. The state of our homes, the lack of faith, the lack of devotion. What kind of Christian do you want to be? Do you want to be Christian in name only? Well, you know what the Bible says, the Lord shall not hold him guiltless that taketh thy name in vain. Do you want to be a Christian in name only? And it's funny because you know what will fix the White House is the church house. But you know what will fix the church house is our house. As a family. As a family. Every single of of the family units that are here today, you men, if you're part of a family unit, you're the head of your home. You're accountable for it. You, you're accountable for it. Don't say, well, you know, my wife, she just, no, you're accountable for it. If you're here and there's no male in your home, but you're the adult, then you're accountable for it. It's your responsibility. No one else's. Your responsibility. I'm responsible for my wife and my child. It's not to say they don't have their own spiritual life and their own accountability. But one of these days, I'm going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account for the way that I've led my home and led my family. What am I going to have to say on that day? You see, it's our houses that really need the reviving. I would go a step further and say that it's not just our house, it's us. It starts with you. You say, who are you talking to? I'm talking to everyone. I'm talking to this preacher right here. It's us. Do we want revival? Are we serious? Are we serious enough to spend time in the prayer closet over it? Do we want it? Are we serious enough to get devoted? You say, oh, you know, preacher, I've always, it's just, you know, I've always been Sunday morning and, and, you know, it's just, it's kind of hard sometimes. Do you want it? Do you want it bad enough? Are you willing to stir yourself up? Are you willing to do what it takes to take hold of God? You see, it's got to begin with us. And the reason a lot of times it doesn't begin is because collectively none of us are willing for it to begin with us. We always say, well, I'll wait till someone else. No, it must begin with us. You won't give an account for them. You'll give an account for you, your family, just as I'll give an account for me and mine. Are we willing? Are we willing? Do we want it? Notice verse 12. Wilt thou refrain thyself for all these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? What does Isaiah mean when he says these things? He's speaking of the things that he's just mentioned in verses 10 and 11. The condition of the country, the condition of the church, the condition of their house. And what he's saying, Isaiah is saying, Lord, in light of all these things, would you still refrain from us? All the torment, would you still keep silent? You see, I find here in this passage, and in verse 12, I find the possibility of revival is implied. 
Isaiah is saying this, Lord, with all this going on, surely you'd answer if we'd call. With our country and the condition that it's in, Lord, surely you'd do something if God's people get serious. Lord, with our churches falling apart the way they are, drowning either in failure or in apathy, dying on the vine, Lord, surely you'd answer. Lord, with our homes crumbling, surely you'd answer. I'd say with Isaiah this morning that surely the Lord would answer if we'd call. So, oh, preacher, I'm waiting to be took out of here. What are you going to be until you're took out of here? You're still going to have to give an account. Jesus might come back before we finish this service. And bless His name, I hope He does. But if He doesn't, you're going to have to give an account for what you do tonight, tomorrow, and the day after. You see, how bad do we really, really want it? Are we willing to just play games? Are we willing to say, Lord, if this is what it's going to take, Lord, if it's going to mean getting rid of this out of my house, I'll do it. I'll go home right now, Lord. Lord, if it's going to mean giving this over to You, I'll give it to You right now. God, I'm serious about it. I believe if we get serious with Him, He gets serious with us this morning.